Okay, so Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 26 by way of introduction. I want to remind you just about Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah had a ministry that no one would want. The Lord commissioned him and essentially said to him, hey, you're going to minister for 40 years and no one's going to listen to you. Okay, and I just... (laughs) I was like, well, uh, Lord, maybe you have the wrong number. Uh, Maybe you'd like to talk to somebody else. No, you're going to minister for 40 years. No one's going to listen to you. And by the way, you're going to have hardship and difficulty, and it's going to hurt, and you're going to want to quit, and all of these things are going to happen to you, but I still want you to do it. And so by way of introduction, as as this message is entitled Hope and Hardship, looking at Psalm 106, but I, I want us to come to grips with the fact that God calls us to ministries that are hard. Keep Marriage is hard, and parenting is hard, and, and you know, doing ministry is hard, and, and that's just the reality of situations. Ministry in a fallen world is hard. Probably most of us would say, you know, apart from Jesus, you know, who's, who's the greatest in the Bible? Who did the most? We, many of us would probably say the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, wow, what a great ministry, and the things that he did, and the churches that he planted, and the, the words that he shared. But you know what? The Lord said to Ananias, who was going to go lay hands on the Apostle Paul there at the beginning of his ministry, he said this, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. God has called us to a ministry of suffering. God has called us to a ministry of hardship. But there's always hope in the midst of that. So what's happening in the book of Lamentations is Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. They haven't listened to Jeremiah's message. They haven't repented. So, so just put yourself in that place for just a moment. Uh, you know, let, let's think of, you know, I guess we, could, we can use Midland or you can use Odessa, whatever city. Imagine for 40 years you went out on the streets of Midland or Odessa and you preached the truth to them and you said, please turn, guys. Judgment is coming. Difficulties are coming. And for 40 years you were persecuted and you were ignored. And then the day came where a foreign army moved in and just destroyed the city. And you saw the bloodshed in the streets. And you saw people being killed. You saw people being enslaved. You see buildings being burned. You saw all of those things. Imagine how that would feel. Well, that's the book of Lamentations. But what's happening here in in Lamentations chapter three, when I pick up on verse 17, is is we're gonna see some of this, this hardship, some of this kind of, I don't know if bitterness is the right word, the anguish that, that Jeremiah is experiencing. So look there, Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 17. So the Lord is, is spe- I'm sorry, Jeremiah is speaking to the Lord. He's writing to the Lord. He says, you have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. So maybe you're in a situation today, that's kind of how you feel. My soul has moved far from peace. You know, I used to be prosperous and this thing or that thing, it's not anymore. My strength is gone. My hope is gone. The Lord's forsaken me. And, and then he calls on the Lord there in verse 19 and he says, remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me, okay? And so he's, he's just kind of down in the pit, right? But then he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. What? <laughs> What's happening there in verse 21? If, if, you know, in the New King James in mind, it lumps verse 21 in with verse 20, and that's unfortunate. Verse 21 actually is attached to verse 22, Okay, so there's an end of a thought when he says, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. He's having a hard time. But notice, he's moving into ver- to hope in the midst of hardship when he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. He looks around the death and destruction and he says, there, there's, there's something above. And if you remember, if you were here last week, our message last week was under his feet Right, Even though this destruction was going on, we, we talked about how whatever's over my head is still under his feet. And so the reality of the situation is that God's mercies are still there. God's compassions are still there. He says, notice this about them. Even in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem, he says about God's mercies and his compassions, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, therefore my soul, therefore says my soul, therefore I hope in him. This is incredibly crucial. When those around us are disappointing us and frustrating us, when we look at our own lives and we look at what, man, I, I'll just be honest with you, I have so much regret in my own life. I have so much regret of things that I've done and, and day by day, if I just look back to yesterday, I have regrets about yesterday. Okay, that's the reality of this situation. And so when we look at the death and destruction and hardship and unrest around us, we are gonna be disheartened. We're, gonna, we're going to be down into the pit. But notice where Jeremiah moves his eyes to. He doesn't say, my hope is in my circumstances. My hope is in me. My hope is, he says, my hope is in him, who he is, right? And, and, and you might be already this morning because of the, the place that you're in. You might say, well, this is the kind of stuff Steve has to say because he's a pastor. <laughs> this is true whether we feel like it's true or not, This is the reality. This is the situation that we're in. Our eyes have to be to the Lord. And the Lord will systematically destroy every idol in our life, everything we're hoping in, until we turn to him. Until we put our hope completely in him. And then notice he says, verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Or that word salvation could be the deliverance of the Lord. So notice, there's no easy answers here. There's no Jeremiah prayed a prayer and the Babylonians were like, you know what, we made a mistake, we're gonna go home. We're gonna leave you guys to it. Sorry about that, guys. No, he's still in the situation. He's still in the hardship, but he knows my only hope is in the Lord. And that's true. If you have a billion dollars in the bank, your hope is still only in the Lord. Okay, if, 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 if things are falling apart, your hope is still only in the Lord. We sometimes convince ourselves that hope is somewhere else because circumstances seem to be okay, but that's a false situation. Our hope is only in him. But notice what he says for us to do, or, or to, to hope in him, uh, to wait for him, to seek him, to hope and wait quietly. It doesn't say about moving quickly. It doesn't say about getting a bunch of stuff done. It says to hope in him, to wait for him, to seek him. That's what he's calling us to. And that's really, really hard. That's a challenge. And so as we think about these things, as we move back now to Psalm 106, or I guess move there for the very first time today, as we go back to Psalm 106, you know, this this message of hope and hardship Here's what it is. It's choosing to continue walking with the Lord even though darkness surrounds you. It's you and I have a choice to continue walking with the Lord even though it's dark. Jeremiah could have been like, you know what, I'm out of here, Lord. This destruction is too much. I'm not gonna hope in you anymore. I'm not gonna wait for you anymore. I'm gonna go do my own thing. I'm gonna go my own way. That wasn't what he did. And, and those are the men and women of God throughout human history who have finished well. They just kept on walking with the Lord. They kept on that long obedience in the same direction. And, and so, you know, I, I would love to come in here and just kind of give you guys a pump up and it's all gonna be awesome and pull a Joe Osteen on you, Okay. But then I'll be unfaithful to the scriptures. The scripture says, hey, by the way, it's going to be hard, but guess what? I'm working all those hard things together for the good. And you're going to be seated in heavenly places, and I'm going to spend eternity future showing you my riches and glory. That's, that's the reality of the situation. And, and so that's what the Lord would want to minister to us today. So here we go, Psalm 106. Interesting thing, commentators believe it's written during the Babylonian captivity. Well, if that's true, it ties exactly with Jeremiah because that was the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. That was in Lamentations. They were being taken captive. And so this is thought to be written by an unknown psalmist, an unnamed psalmist during the Babylonian captivity. So while they are in captivity in a foreign land. And so notice the first part of the psalm here, it's directed toward the people. So the psalmist is speaking directly to the people of Israel. He's saying, or of Judah. He says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Again, 
very psalmy, <laughs> very things that we've seen over and, ago, uh, over and again in the Psalms. And so a couple of things I want you to see here, the direction for the people, and I think we want to apply it to our lives as well, is to praise the Lord. Okay, Praise the Lord and give thanks to the Lord. Praise the Lord and give thanks to the Lord. We've been praising the Lord through song, and that's great, Okay, but also to give thanks. You know, I, I by nature am a very unthankful person, very pessimistic, you know, oh, well, things are going well now, but it's going to go poorly and that kind of stuff. And, you know, the Aggies are about to start playing football again, and we know how that goes. You know, all of those things, okay? But what God wants us to do is be thankful. You know, it doesn't really take too long if you actually said, you know what, I'm going to just sit down, and I'm just going to kind of start running through whatever comes to my head, things I can be thankful for. There's a whole bunch to be thankful for. There's a lot to be thankful for. Now, but why should we praise the Lord? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Notice there in verse one. Why? Notice, because he is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Please, please don't miss this. It's very easy for us to say, oh yeah, yeah, God is good, and then move out from this space. No, we need to settle down on this, because by calling God good, this speaks of the character of God. Please hear me, this is the character of God. And I would argue that all theological questions come back to this central question. You have to settle in your hearts on a daily basis, do I believe God is good? That's the key. Is God good? Now, there are many different ways that you might wanna answer this. I wanna give you one possible way of answering this question, is God is good? And this is, this is what I always come back to, this is helpful for me, it may be helpful for you, the question I always ask myself, is Jesus good? Is Jesus good? Because sometimes for me, as I think about God the Father and I try to understand him, uh, is, in one sense, for me, he's kind of like a little abstract sometimes. Like, how do I understand him? But, but then I come to the person of Jesus Christ and I say, was well, he good? Because this is what Jesus said in John 14, verse 9. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. He says, I only say the things the Father told me to do. I only do the works that the Father tells me to do. I always do those things that please the Father. So the, the connection I'm wanting you and I to make is when we question is, is God good, is to ask ourselves, is Jesus good? Because Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, we're told that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. And so one commentator saying about Hebrews 1.3 wrote this, the writer is saying that the Son is an exact representation of God. The Son is such a revelation of the Father that when we see Jesus, we see what God's real being is. Right, now if you're anything like me, this, this is helpful because it makes things concrete. Now I can look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things he said, the things he did, the way he treated people, and I can say, well, does that look like a good person? And I say, yes. So I can say without hesi slightest hesitation that we know that God the Father is good because we know that Jesus the Son is good. And, and so please, please, please don't pass up this point because you are gonna encounter things in your life that's gonna cause you to question God's goodness. And maybe you've already encountered it, and maybe you're encountering it again, or you're gonna get on the news or on the internet, and you're gonna see things that are gonna cause you to question God's goodness. Because what you and I do, as time-bound people living in this fallen world, we often determine God's character through the circumstances of this world. It's a dangerous place to be. So what we need to do is determine the character of God through his fullest revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'll be honest with you, I still don't understand many of the ways and thoughts of God because they are so far above me. And that's what Isaiah tells me, right? God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. But I can understand that God is good because Jesus has shown me that he is good. And so when you and I are tempted to walk away from the Lord and say, well, I'm, I'm kind of done with this and it's not working and situations aren't turning the way that I want them to, I, I just want you to ask you to consider in the, in, in, you know, in the honesty of your heart, who am I going to find that's better than Jesus? Some influencer on TikTok? <laughs> 
Who is better than the Lord Jesus? And so I want to encourage you. This is the encouragement for you and for me. When you begin to doubt the goodness of God because of the difficult circumstances that you find yourself in, please go back to Jesus. Please go back to the Gospels. And there you're going to find the goodness of God. If your heart is in a place today and you're frustrated and you're bitter and you're upset and you're confused, go back to the Gospels. Start looking at the life of the Lord Jesus again. Spend time with him because you and I, when we begin to falter and fail, we've gotten too far from the, from the Savior. You remember Peter? Peter in his own pride was like, Lord, these other losers are gonna leave you. Pete won't ever leave you. I'm the rock, remember? Right? It's gonna be fine. I'm gonna go with you. Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you like weak, you know, and, and, and when, you've, you know, when you basically repent to come back to me, But what happened is Peter began to follow Jesus at a distance that night. Remember, he began to to warm himself at the enemy's fire. And so what happened is when you and I begin to distance ourselves from Jesus because circumstances, situations aren't turning out the way that we thought they were, we begin to warm ourselves at the enemy's, enemy's fire. And the, and the enemy starts to call us on it, and we begin to deny our association with the Lord. It, th- there's no way around this that, that the Lord Jesus is the only one who can help us through. The Lord Jesus is the only one that we're to, to be committed to. The Lord Jesus, is, is he's, he's central. We can't make him secondary or tertiary or all those other areas. Okay, He has to be number one. And so let's continue on here in verse one. We read, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures for always. That word mercy, it's, it's a common word. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes in the Hebrew, it, it's a word that means loving kindness or goodness or faithfulness. So you and I can give thanks to the Lord. We can pray to him because he is continually loving kind to us. That was a horrible sentence, sorry. Uh, he, is, he has loving kindness and goodness and faithfulness. We often judge the Lord by the people around us, right? Please don't judge the Lord Jesus Christ by how I live my life, right? I wanna live more like Jesus, but if, if you spend enough time with me, you're gonna be like, it doesn't look very much like Jesus. It's true, right? So we want to say, well, okay, it's the Lord Jesus who's loving kind. It's his goodness, his faithfulness. Verse two it says, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? And the idea here is that God's works are too many to be praised individually. There's no way that we can praise the Lord for all his works. I mean, think about it. If you guys were to, you know, kind of go back to school and take an anatomy class and kind of begin to learn about your circulatory system and the Krebs cycle and all these things that happen, your mitochondria and your DNA, if you just thank the Lord for kind of making life possible, for just kind of keeping everything going, there's no way you can thank God for all the things that he's doing. Think about all the things that had to go right in your vehicle <laughs> for you to get here today. And so, so the Lord is over all these things. He's holding all these things together. His mighty works are too many to be praised. And so, so, so let me give you an argument from the greater to the lesser. If there are so many works that God does that are too many to be praised, well, then the lesson is we can always find something to praise God for. If we can never praise him for all of his things, well, then surely we can find something to praise him for. But here's the key. We have to be in the right mindset and the right heart condition. Because if our mindset is wrong, if our heart condition is wrong, then we'll, well, there's nothing to praise God about. There's nothing good. There's nothing. And if we've done that, it's because we're, we're not living in current reality. We're not living in the truth. And so, so what we need to do is, is get back to the scriptures. The scriptures will tell us there's always something to praise God about. Verse three says, blessed are those, um, so mighty acts of the Lord who can declare all his praise. Yes, blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. Okay, so now th- there's a very interesting thing as I think about this verse. The way that I, I never let Sarah know um, kind of what I'm teaching or the points I'm making, but the Holy Spirit always knows. <laughs> and so he always 
seems every, there's at least one song that every week that ties in perfectly with something I'm sharing. So I want to kind of share from this from verse 3. What we're called to is to walk in justice and righteousness, to bring blessing, right? Um, and it's simply, please hear me, simply do the right thing and you will live in God's blessing. That's the reality. Do the right thing and you will live in God's blessing. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not a faith and prosperity teacher. You see how I dress. I can't be. <laughs> okay, the reality is we think, well, God's blessing means I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to be rich and I'm going to have a private plane and I'm going to be in this place or that place. That's, that's not God's blessing. God's blessing means that you live a life that he's pleased with, that his, his face shines upon you, that he draws you near to himself, that, that he is preparing a place for you. Those are all the kind of things. And so the, the verse that came to my mind is I looked at verse three, it's Micah 6, 8, which we sang about earlier. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? So just stop there for just a minute. Think about that. What does the Lord require of you? That's, that's a pretty important verse. Okay, the Lord requires something of me. What does he require of me? Well, he requires me to, to um, walk to an altar on, on, you know, on my knees. No, no, no. doesn't say that. Well, he requires me to go to church for seven hours every... No, no, doesn't that. What does he require of me? It says here, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That, that's what God wants from us. Do the right thing. Love mercy. That means love mercy. It, this, this really ties to when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, which is my favorite beatitude, because I need a lot of mercy. And so I'm, I'm, it's, not a, it's not a, maybe we call it a, a life hack. I want mercy, so I should show people mercy. Because <laughs> the Lord Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So God wants us to do the right thing. He wants to treat people mercifully and walk humbly with him. You can do that, Christian. You can choose on a, just say, I'm going to just do the right thing. I'm going to love being merciful, and I'm going to walk humbly with God, realizing that God is God and I'm not. Those are all things we can do. That's what God's calling us. And guess what? You are going to live a blessed life. You are going to live a life of having good relationships with people, a life where you influence people for the Lord, a life that the Lord can bless. Now, as we move into verses 4 and 5 now of Psalm 106, we, we move. Now, this is directed toward God. So the psalmist is now directing his attention toward God. He says, remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Okay, now, I just want to remind you once again there in verse 4, that word salvation we, we as, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we often think about like eternal salvation, salvation from hell. This salvation so often um, in the Old Testament really speaks of deliverance, being delivered out of a situation. And so there's really, you can imagine he's in Babylonian captivity. He wants to be delivered out of that, right? He wants to be out of that. So he's, he's wanting the Lord to visit him in that way. And so what the psalmist is asking really in verses four and five is for God to bless both him and the people of Israel to bless both him and the people of Judah. So notice he says, remember, O Lord, the, the, with a favor you have toward your people, O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So you see the mixing and melding. He, he's not this individualistic faith. He's saying, yes, I want what you have for me, Lord, but I also want what you have for your people. It's, it's both of us. I'm part of this. And, and so this is not an either or. This is not a bless me or bless them. It's a bless us. It's pray for yourself and others. So, so this is, there's this kind of like a weird thing that, that happens in Christianity. Sometimes we can kind of get on the one side and we can say, well, kind of our situations are such that we just pray for only ourselves all the time. Right, our situations and our difficulties and our hardships, and we kind of get real me focused. Or then you can get super spiritual and you could say, Well, I never pray for myself. I only ever pray for other people, other people, other people. And, and guess what? You should do both. You should pray for yourself and your needs and your situations, and you should pray for others. Both of those are needed. 
Jesus prayed for others and he prayed for himself. Paul prayed for others and prayed for himself. So both are needed. And that's what we see here with this with the psalm. And I want to remember I want you to remind you that Christianity is a team sport. It's interesting, Brandy and I have been watching this show about tennis and and it's all these different singles players and kind of what they go through. And I did not realize how mentally strenuous professional singles tennis is. All these different individuals, they play tennis, and though they have a team, once they get out there, they're all alone. And there's all the crowd, and, and, and they really have a lot of mental issues because of it. It's very, very difficult. And sometimes we can act like that as Christians, that we're, we're professional Christians and we're all singles right? And, and I don't mean married or unmarried. I mean singles in the sense of we're doing it by ourselves, and I've got to get it done, and, and i got to get this serve in, and it's up to me, and i got to get man, my Christian backhand down. Take a breath. Because I've also been watching, because I watch too much TV, a, a show about quarterbacks. And even though there's all this pressure on a quarterback, it's different because a quarterback has a team. And he's doing it with a team. And there's people to pick him up. And there's people to encourage him. And so, so I want to encourage you that Christianity is a team sport. It's not an individual. You're not by yourself. We, we are, the Bible says that we're individual members, but as a part of a collective body. That, that we're, you know, and so, and so you may be the pinky toe in the body of Christ. <laughs> that may be you but you're still a part of the body. Don't think that you're by yourself. And so here's the cool thing about being this body. The more that we invest in others in the body, the healthier everything will be. The more that you and I invest in other people and I say, Lord, help me to invest in other people, help me to bring other people along, help me to encourage other people, help me to do these things, then what's happening, you're praying for yourself and for others and the body's gonna be stronger. You know, going to Breaking Bread on, on Wednesday and, and serving with other people, the fellowship, and, and seeing how God's made them and the gifts that they have, it was a beautiful time, and it, it's a reminder that we're a part of a body. Now, also we see here in verses four and five is the focus on your. Look again there. He says, you know, your people and your salvation and your chosen ones and your nation and your inheritance. What's going on here? We, it's a reminder to us that everyone and everything belongs to God. Everyone and everything belongs to God. And, and this needs to take a little stress off our lives because we all have loved ones that are not living the way that they should, or we have situations and circumstances, ah, and just remind myself, and say, okay, well, I wanna be a steward in what I'm doing, but it doesn't belong to me. This person doesn't belong to me. These things don't belong to me. Ultimately, belong to the Lord. Let's look at verses six and seven now. It says, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Okay. So we're about to get into some bad news as we move <laughs> through this chapter. It's going to be a recounting of kind of what we, you know, you, in, in sports, there's the highlights. These are the lowlights. <laughs> These are all the things that they did wrong. And so this is Israel's rebellion during the Exodus. And, but notice how the psalmist writes. Look at the focus on we. He says, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Okay? And so the, this is his focus on, you know, there, there are sinners around me, but you know, I'm a sinner as well. And, and so there's interesting, there's a lot of keyboard warriors, right, in this world, and they point out all the faults of other people, but I just wonder, well, are, are you wrong on anything? <laughs> have you done anything wrong? Are there any sins in your life? And so we have to be very careful to acknowledge our own sin as we, as we bring and confess before the Lord, hey, we've done this thing, Lord, I'm not free of this. Jesus even taught us to pray this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That we're all sinners, we're all in need of forgiveness. So the reality is that we're all sinners in need of forgiveness, and we are to forgive others as we've been forgiven. Okay, it's very easy for us not to forgive. Um, I'm, I'm a very, left to my own devices, I'm a very unforgiving person. And the, the scripture the Lord always brings me back to is the servant, remember, who had an unpayable debt? 
And his master said, all right, we're going to hold account. And he's like, please forgive me, please forgive me. And the, Lord, the, the master forgives him. But he goes out to someone who owes him less, and he says, you know, I'm going to get you. And the Lord's like, no, nah, it's not going to work for me. So for us, the, the, a remembrance of how much we've been forgiven will enable us, put us in the right heart, heart set or right mindset to go and forgive other people. In fact, um, the re, you know, this is what the, the Lord says here, or I'm sorry, through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He reminds us that we're all sinners in need of forgiveness, and so he says even how we're to approach people. Uh, Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This is very important. So, when we go and seek to call somebody on their sin, the whole idea of calling them on their sin is so that they can be restored. That's, that's the goal. The goal is always restoration. The goal is not, you're causing me trouble, I'm gonna get you. The goal is not, I'm bored in life, I'm just looking to see who's sinning. Okay, the, the, the is restoration, but you have to do it in humility because if you don't do it in humility, you can be tempted toward pride, and then pretty soon someone's going to need to come knocking on your door <laughs> to try to restore you. All right, let's move on. Verses 8 through 12 now. It says, Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also and dried it up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one left. When they believed his words, they sang his praise. Okay, so what we have here in verses 8 through 12, in spite of their failures of faith, the Lord still delivered them out of Egypt. But notice why he did it there in verse 8. Notice he saved them for his name's sake. Okay, now, last week I showed you a good painting and a bad painting. Okay, I thought about drawing something today, but I thought, you know what, let's not do that. So can we have the next slide? This is something different, okay? All right, so I did not draw this. This is from these little things I go through. These are some leadership principles that we have at MCA that I go through with the new staff. And, and so I wanted to share a leadership principle I think that's very helpful. It's a, it's a biblical leadership principle, and it's this idea of ownership. The idea that for you and I as believers, we have choices to make. Okay, and, and so what we have here is we have something called left circle and right circle. Anyone who's gone to MCA <laughs> knows about this. So it's this idea on the left circle, you're a victim. Okay, that, that you're, the, kind of the best way to put it is you're a pool ball on the pool table of life. You always get knocked around. They're, they're, you, know, you can't have any say in things. It's everybody else's fault. You know, life and people and circumstances, they're kind of coming at me. I have no choice. I'm a victim. But the reality is the way the scripture teaches it is actually we have freedom to make choices. And so that's right circle. That's the freedom circle that I can actually make choices that affect my life, that affect the people around me, that affect circumstances. But what we get so mad about is we, we want to control outcomes, we want to control situations, but you know what? There's only three things you can control according to this leadership principle. You can control your choices, you can control your perspective, and you can control who you trust. You know, and as, as I've prayed through this thing and I've sought to say, is this a biblical idea? I, I believe it's absolutely biblical. You can control your choices. God has given you agency. God has given you the ability to make choice. The fact that you're here today, or at least if you're an adult, you might have gotten dragged here if you're younger, uh, but if you're an adult, you made a choice to come here, right? So that's something you control. You made a choice about your perspective. You can either say, well, I'm going to listen to Steve, and maybe today he'll have something good to say, or you can have your perspective of like, eh, I don't want to listen to that guy, and that's going to control, Right? Because that choice, that, that, that your perspective, how you, much you enjoy or don't enjoy this, and you can control who you trust. You know, am I going to trust this person? Am I going to not trust? You can control those things, your choice, your perspective, and who you trust. And when you do that, you'll find yourself living in the freedom circle. You're saying, oh man, things around me, I can't control all of this, but I can control my choice, my perspective, who I trust. And that's what we see from the Lord, right? The Lord 
chooses to bring this people out for his namesake, for his purposes. And so that's really important, that God has never left circle. God is never the victim. And please don't think he is. Don't think because craziness is abounding in the world, just like God said it would, that somehow God is wringing his hands in heaven. I don't know how I'm going to work this out. God is not anxious God is not frustrated. God always does what it's in his nature to do. And, and so um, please understand that our choices can displease the Lord, right? If we make bad choices, that can displease the Lord. They don't change who the Lord is. The Lord is who he is. He's unchangeable. Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. So likewise, you and I, please understand, we can be hurt and disappointed by the choices of others, absolutely. The choices that other people make can hurt us. They can disappoint us, but those choices should not control us. Those choices should not control us because we can still behave in a way that's in obedience to the Lord. I'm going to give you a biblical example of somebody who is in the freedom circle instead of the victim circle. I almost tipped over my water, but I didn't. All right, let's move to Acts chapter 20, if you would. Let's look at Acts chapter 20. It's a great example of being right circle, of being in the freedom circle, as opposed to being in the victim circle. Acts chapter 20, as you're turning there, um, this is the Apostle Paul. He's going to be speaking to the Ephesian elders. He'd spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He loved the people there. And so he's speaking to them about kind of what's, what's coming next for him. And so there's a lot of interesting things here. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24 he says to the Ephesian elders, the Apostle Paul speaking, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Stop there for a second. Think about that. There's, there's this kind of like weird false teaching in the, the professing church that says if God says something to you, it has to be a quote unquote good thing. You know, that, that everything God says to you is going to be good. Notice what the Holy Spirit would say to Paul. Hey, Paul, everywhere you go, I just want to remind you, chains and tribulations await you. <laughs> that was the Holy Spirit's testimony to Paul. They're going to imprison you. They're going to beat you up. They're going to persecute you. That's a reality. Okay, so that's a circumstance and situation. If Paul were in the victim circle, what would Paul do? He's like, I'm out of here, Right? I've, I've done enough for the Lord, That's, it's good, I'm out. But notice what he says in verse 24, but none of these things move me. That, that's amazing, that's amazing freedom. He says, I'm not gonna let my circumstances choose for me, I'm gonna choose for me. I'm not gonna be moved by these things, and, and here's why. He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to you know, give in. Why? Because I've already chosen that my life's not dear to myself. He's already said in Galatians 2.20, right? Or that, that you know, it's not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Okay? So it's not my life. And also, I have a greater goal. My goal is not escaping tribulation. My goal is not escaping chains. My goal is not escaping suffering. My goal is to finish my race. Right? And, and we don't respect people if we're watching the Olympics and a guy's like, man, this race was really hard, so I just quit. <laughs> I just stopped. Well, great. No, we don't do that. A person who finishes through that. So that's, that's what he says. He says, I want to finish my race in joy. I want to finish preaching the gospel that Jesus told me to preach. And, and so that power, that perspective gave Paul the ability to keep going. And please understand, the same Holy Spirit that inspired and empowered and gifted Paul is the same Holy Spirit who lives in you. You have the power to finish what God's called you to finish. Let's turn back now to Psalm 106. And we see, again, a list of some of the lowlights of the ch Israel in the wilderness. We'll move through these pretty quickly. Verse 13 through 15, it says, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. God tested and tested God in the desert. He gave them their request, and, but sent leanness into their souls. And so that was the one where they demanded quail. 
and they ate all this quail and so much it says that it came out of their nostrils, which I don't even know how that works, but um, really, really gross situation because of their lusting after meat. Verses 16 through 18, when they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Okay. Now, what the psalmist is doing here is he's listing these different lowlights. He's not doing them in chronological order. He's kind of got a different way of doing it. It's, I guess, maybe from lesser to greater type of thing. But if you'll remember verses 16 through 18, that was a rebellion against Moses and Aaron by uh, Dathan, Abiram, Korah, and on. They, they said, you know, basically, we want power, we want control. And then Moses said something super bold. He said, if these guys die like any normal people, Lord hasn't sent me. But if God does a new thing, and he opens up the ground to swallow these guys, then you know that the Lord sent me. <laughs> and the Lord opened up the ground, swallowed those dudes, and burned everybody else up. Okay, that was a radical situation. Uh, but, but you see, again, suffering. We would probably say Moses was a great man of God, and yet he had a lot of difficulty to deal with. Verses 19 through 22, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who, has done, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Okay, very, very interesting. This is Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. And so um, what's happening here is, is God, God threatens to destroy them all, but notice who stood up for them is Moses. Moses, it tells us in there in verse 23, his chosen one stood before him in the breach. That's actually a, a, a military term or military phrase for someone who in a walled city stands in there fighting to try to keep the enemy from coming in. It's radical. It's a radical picture. So a soldier standing in the gap in the wall, sacrificing himself to save his people. So what's going on here? Well, please understand, God would have been justified in destroying the people. God would have been fully justified in destroying the Israelites for their disobedience and worshiping the golden calf. But, but I also want you to kind of, I want you to take a step back and think about this in kind of big picture terms. Well, why did they have a guy who was willing to stand in the gap? Why did they have Moses as their guy well, he was a guy that, that God had raised up to stand in the gap. Huh. So God would have been right to destroy the Israelites, but God had already raised up a man years earlier to be the one to stand in the gap. That, that seems to remind me of someone. So, so what Moses is in this incident, Moses is actually an Old Testament picture of Christ. He's a picture of the man that God raised up so, so that he, the wrath that the people deserved he, would, would be taken upon him. It was a picture of that. See, it's interesting, in Acts chapter 15, verse 18, I'll just read it for you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says something very, very interesting. They're talking about, you know, should the Gentiles um, be allowed into the church and all that kind of stuff. And this is what James says. He says, known to God from eternity are all his works. God knows what he's always going to do. And so God knew that the people deserved this wrath, and so he had raised up Moses as the intercessor. He'd raised him up. So again, God would have been fully justified in destroying the people, but God had raised up an intercessor in Moses. So this is a picture of Christ, a man raised up by God who stands in the gap for us and takes God's righteous wrath for us. Now, here's the thing, though. Moses, because he was a sinner, he could not pay for the sins of others. But Jesus Christ, because he's sinless, could and did. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Moses was a type of Christ, and he was an Old Testament example of the coming Messiah. All right, let's look at verses 24 through 27. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, to scatter them in the lands. Okay, 
So this refusal to enter the promised land, that's what's being spoken of. The 12 spies went out. 10 spies gave a bad report. The people listened to the 12 instead of the two, which is just a reminder, probably in all of human history, the majority's never been right. Okay, that's just, that's just how it goes. And so they got to wander for 40 years. Here's the lesson. Please hear me. Unbelief contaminates others. Unbelief contaminates others and it, present, it prevents them from receiving what God wishes to give them. Unbelief pre- prevents God from giving us what he wants to give us. And we see this in John 3.16. John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that here it is, here's the condition, that whoever believes... Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God wants to give everlasting life to all, to whoever believes. But we're told in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So that's God's desire, that's God's heart, is that people would place their faith in Christ and be saved, but unbelief blocks them. Unbelief blocks them from that salvation. The the scriptures are clear that salvation, not condemnation, is God's desire for the world. Belief brings salvation and unbelief brings condemnation. Verses 28 through 31, they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plagues broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. So this is the situation with Balaam and the donkey and then the Israelites worshiping Baal and committing sexual immorality. Phineas stands up. He kills two people engaged in sexual immorality. The plague stops and it's a righteous act that Phineas did. Now, it's a reminder here, okay, that we don't have to behave like unbelievers even if they're all around. See, there was a lot of people behaving like unbelievers around Phineas, but Phineas says, I'm going to be different. I'm going to do something different. Now, please understand, I don't want you taking a spear and going and like stabbing unbelievers around. That's not what I'm saying here. That's not the application we want to make here. The application is we want to stand for righteousness. We want to be someone different. We want to not be like everyone else around us. Verses 32 and 33, they angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. This is a situation where the people want water. God says to Moses directly, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. He'd already struck the rock before, but you know what? Moses, 40 years of this, he's had enough. (laughs) Okay, he's lost it. And he basically says to the people, hey, you rebels, shall I bring water from the rock? He strikes the rock twice. God graciously allows water to come out. And then God says, Moses, we got to talk, man. You misrepresented me before the people. We learn in the New Testament that actually that rock was symbolic of Christ. He he destroys the imagery there. And and so he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And, And so that's a reminder for us that when it comes to spiritual leadership, that there's a higher accountability that we can miss out on what God's called us to through our sin. Verses 34 through 39, now, this is a, a failure in the promised land. It says, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and leaned, learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. So this is disobedience in the promised land. They failed to destroy the Canaanites. So that led to them imitating the practices of the Canaanites. They began to just do the things that the Canaanites were doing. And it led to just a whole bunch of messes. Starting now verses 40 through 46. This is the time of the judges. It says, therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his inheritance He gave them to the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Okay, so, uh, oh, then let me continue on, sorry. Um, Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction and when he heard their cry and for their sake, he remembered his covenant 
and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. And so just the time of the judges and you read all of that kind of stuff and it's a, it's a big mess. But I also want to remind you that as, as ugly as the, the book of Judges is in so many ways, there were people that God continually raised up to do the right thing. That even if it looks like kind of the culture's against us and everything's going wrong, that we can still be people who are in the freedom circle who do the right thing and choose to walk in obedience no matter what's happening around us. Verse 47 Again, speaking of the Babylonian captivity that the author finds himself, he kind of brings it down to where he is. He says, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. And so, so he wants help. He's asking for help. He, 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 he knows that, Lord, ultimately, if something's going to be different, something's going to change, we need your intervention. And I just want to encourage you on that, kind of as we're nearing the end of this study, is... is Really, for us as believers, we just want to get it solved ourselves, but we need the Lord to intervene. We need the Lord to intervene in our lives. We need the Lord to intervene in the lives around us. We need to pray for those in authority and politicians and all that kind of stuff. We need to be people who not, don't believe the Bible only on Sunday, but we need to be people who are just seeking the Lord and basically saying to the Lord, if you don't get this thing done, if you don't change me, if you don't change those around me, it's not going to get done. To, to in a, you know, that phrase, ride or die, to ride or die with the Lord. That Lord, if, if something is gonna be different, it has to be you who makes it different. Not because I have some new program or did this new thing or, or you know, any of that. It's Lord, you have to be the one to intervene. And then verse 48 says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen, praise the Lord. So he ends on a high note here. Kind of what I take from verse 48 is that old saying, you know, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. You know, and, and that's, that's it's, you know, it's, it's a useful saying for get kids to be quiet. <laughs> but it's also something that we need to repeat to ourselves. Okay? Because the world, our fallen flesh, and the devil wants to get us to believe that God's not good. We need to remind ourselves that God is good all the time. There's always a reason to praise him, that he's working all things together for the good, and we can trust him. And so as we close our time, then I just want to leave you with, with three thoughts taken from the message. Number one, because God is always good, we can have hope and hardship. Okay, we don't have hope and hardship because, man, we're just, you know, I just, I just love it when things are hard and difficult. I, I, I love crying all the time. No, that's, that's not what it is. We have hope and hardship because God is always good. God's goodness is not dependent upon circumstances. God's goodness is not dependent upon how things go in this fallen world. God's goodness is dependent upon his nature. He's always good. And so we can have hope in the midst of that hardship. Number two, if we begin to doubt God's goodness, please get back to the gospels and see the goodness of the Lord Jesus. Get back, don't rob yourself of the peace and security and hope and friendship with Jesus that he wants you to have. You know, you know I, I constantly am just like, man, Jesus, I just wanna go to heaven to be with you and I just wanna to see you and all this kind of stuff and, and I feel like the Lord just tells me, well, why don't you live with me today? <laughs> live with me where you are right now. Have fellowship with me right now. Spend time with me right now. So yes, we're looking forward to that time with the Lord Jesus when we get to see him face to face, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. Live with him right now. Cultivate that friendship, that relationship with him right now and you'll see God's goodness. And thirdly and finally, trusting God brings blessing, but unbelief brings loss. So remember that. Trusting God brings blessing, but unbelief brings loss. And so let's trust the Lord and let's trust his plan.